Blog Talk Radio. Listeners, Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're waiting for my good friend, Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld. Uh, we'll see what happens with Sam. Uh, sometimes Sam is um, doesn't always show up exactly on time. I hope he does. But if not, <clears throat> then we shall forge forward into the day of live broadcasting here. Coming back from two days of vacation, or I wouldn't say vacation, I'd say more of like religious observance, uh, that being observing the holiday of Sukkot, of uh, the uh, festival of tabernacles, the uh, the time when um, Jewish uh, people uh, set up their, their sukkah, their, um, their huts in the backyard. Uh, many Jews do this. I do it, my wife and I. And uh, we had a nice time this year. We uh, we finally figured out how to get one that actually functions. <laughs> I mean, it's not uh, – in the past, we'd have this uh, really laborious sukkah, which uh, involved a lot of nails and, and hammering pieces of wood together. And it was a big, big job, neither of which – neither of us of which are inclined to uh, to do that kind of work. We're both sort of city people, you might say. By the time the end, by the time we'd finished the thing, we'd, we were, both of us were on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Well, this year we got a kind of a prefab sukkah, which uh, with bungee cords and canvas, and uh, hollowed out uh, metal metal poles that just uh, you don't have to nail anything. You don't have to bring out the drill. All you do is tighten up little bolts, and you can construct the uh, scaffolding, and then you hang the canvas on it and fastened it all together with bungee cords. So we have our sukkah in the backyard, and we're enjoying it. People come and visit us. Uh, we have our meals there. We, you know, we, we sing songs, and it's, it's kind of a nice, um, nice experience. And uh, we happen to live in a, um, in a little neighborhood here in Boston that, um, in, in which there are a lot of Jews who observe sukkah. So you have sukkahs uh, lining up and down the street. And people like to come sometimes when you're out there and they visit and they, they it's 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 an excellent time you know it's it's a very good it's a great tradition, and um, it's one that I have come to admire immensely. Well, what is the news today? Obviously, we're all waiting the big big evening, which is the, the first debate between the two presidential candidates. Uh, I think that it's going to be a very important event politically. Um, with an election that's this close, you know, these things take on enormous significance. And um, especially for someone like Mitt Romney, who has such powers arrayed against him, uh, for him to step up and, and do this, you know, he has to really be careful with regard to everything he says. But more than that, Mitt Romney has to show, um, he has to be himself and he has to show the, the the better side of himself uh, in, in this situation. Sometimes I think Mitt Romney can get a little tense and uh, remote, and he can't let that happen. I hope he doesn't, but who knows? 
Um, it's an exciting event. I've been in debates. I debated Congressman Barney Frank at um, at the Wamsutta Club when I ran for Congress in 2004. And uh, we're talking about a whole room packed with people supporting Barney and a small group of people supporting me and a boisterous crowd at that. And it was great. It was it was ext- very, very exciting. Uh, yeah, I think I held my own, but um, I was caught off guard on one question and um, – you know the the media focused on that, and, and but that's how it goes. You know, you you, you know you have to um, be very very careful. You know, especially when you're a conservative, uh, you have to watch every. Not not only do you have to watch every single word, but you have to even. You know, I, I was in board meetings, particularly at the um, at the New Bedford Standard Times, which really took my campaign seriously. They really felt that I was a challenge to Barney Frank, and they went after me with hook and tongue. Um, you know, they, 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 the editor despised me anyways at the time. Uh, to get his name now, he's retired, really nasty individual. And I remember being in, board, in, in several board meetings at the paper in which, you know, they would ask me a question that was totally loaded, like, you know, kind of do, do you beat your wife kind of question or how often, you know, and, and you'd have to sit there and <clears throat> even to, to so much as sigh the wrong way uh, could, could lead to, um, you know, is reported. You know, you'd sit there like a stone and you, you just very carefully step in and, and speak. So that's the atmosphere that Mitt Romney is operating in, and he has to understand that. But Mitt Romney has been around. Mitt Romney was debating Ted Kennedy when he ran for Congress, when he ran for the U.S. Senate in Massachusetts back in the, I think it was the early 1990s. I mean, back then, Barack Obama was probably still an Indonesian student. I don't know, whatever he was doing. or He was allegedly at some college. Of course, we don't know because he doesn't release any of his records. And yet, and there was Mitt Romney, you know, a, a true adult conducting himself in public affairs and debating none other than Ted Kennedy, who's not exactly a pushover. Anyway, so I have high hopes for the evening. And like everyone else, or like most of us, I will be watching this thing very carefully and with every, and hanging on every word. Anyway, on that note, we're going to take a brief break. You're welcome to join the conversation. Come on down. What is on your mind this afternoon? Chuck Morse here at Chuck Morse Speaks. You can call us, 347-327-9849. That number, again, is 347-327-9849. If you'd like to join the conversation, please stay tuned. Samuel Blumenfeld will not be joining me this segment. In the segment in hour number two, the syndicated hour will be joined by Curtis Grieco, who is uh, calls himself the imperfect messenger. 
Curtis is a commentator on uh, political and economic issues. Always very, very good guy to have on the air. Uh, looking forward to that. Meanwhile, you're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Yes, indeed. This debate is going to be very important. The polls apparently today are tightening in several states. Uh, this is a horse race. It is by no means over. I do think that the left has rigged a lot of these polls to try to make it look like Obama has some kind of an inevitability. But uh, believe me, it's you know it's not. I think that um, Mitt Romney should be ahead by quite a bit. I would you know by conventional terms, I would hope that he'd be ahead now by ten points. Then it really would be over. That's not happening because Barack Obama has been able to garner open, unabashed support from probably over 95, 96% of the mainstream media. And uh, they will not cover certain stories about Obama. They didn't do it back in 08. And they're not about to do it now. Instead, they're going to criticize those of us who do cover those stories. I'm, I'm not even going to go into them because it's not worth it I mean, since they've, they've been covered by, um, anyway. But uh, there are a lot of things about Obama and who he is, his belief system, his past, his personal past, his professional past, that is just off the table. It's taboo. They will not discuss it. Um, I could just say, I could just urge people to uh, to go to WorldNet Daily if they want to get a sense of what I'm talking about. I really don't want to go into it. But I do want to get into why this election is so important. Um, I was talking with um, a prominent retired Boston Globe foreign correspondent yesterday. He happened to be at one of the sukkahs I visited for a barbecue. And we really shot the breeze. He's very liberal. He's very well-known. I'm not going to mention who because it was a private conversation. But, you know, we really shot the breeze. We both had a good glass of wine together, and we we went over the campaign. And uh, I think that his view is very indicative of the left. He's unabashedly pro-Obama. And, you know, the basic criticism of, of Mitt Romney is absurd, which is that he's an elitist, really elitist you know excuse me but last i checked the kennedys were about as elitist as you could get fdr was a good elitist i'm going to get into that in the second hour there's a new book out that i'm reading i just finished reading it's excellent it's called operation snow how a soviet mole in fdr's white house triggered pearl harbor in fact i'm going to get into that in a minute but um i mean you don't think john kerry is an elitist or al gore and these guys were born with silver spoons in their mouths. You know, they they actually never went really ventured too far into the private sector. Mitt Romney was not. First of all, his father and his family were not in the, quite in the same league. They were never accepted as Eastern Seaboard liberal wasps, like the aforementioned. Even though uh, even though uh, both happened to be Roman Catholics, that's beside the point. Mitt Romney is a Mormon and is a Midwesterner. His father was never quite accepted in that in that uh, pro- very privileged club. but uh, And he wasn't as rich as they were. And Mitt Romney did not inherit money. Mitt Romney certainly got help going through college. Uh, you know, he graduated Harvard with a double degree, law and business. 
uh, and he's combined those two aspects in his career. But Mitt Romney made his money the old-fashioned way. He is a self-made man. He ran a multinational corporation. He did so in a way that is very standard in terms of how business is done. I don't think it's appropriate to judge what he would do as president by that, even though the left is trying to do that. And I understand that. That's fair criticism. But what bugs me is this whole elitist charge. It's utterly preposterous. But there you have it. We're supposed to view Mitt Romney as, first of all, rich, and there's something wrong with that. And secondly, that therefore he doesn't care about little people. Well, I'll tell you what. Barack Obama has, due to his policies over the last four years, and by the way, this was inadvertently leaked by none other than Vice President Joe Biden, he has, his policies have contributed to more poverty, more people on, uh, you know, dependent on government assistance than ever in the, in the history of this country. The standard of living has been flatter. The wage earners have, wage earning has dropped. The overwhelmingly liberal and left-wing top 1% wealthiest people in this country have gotten richer. And poor schleppers like myself and, and perhaps some of my listeners today have seen their income level drop. They've seen hours reduced. They've seen benefits reduced. They've seen the value of the dollar um, weakened because of the amount of money that Obama has pumped into the economy with his trillion-dollar stimulus package and with his trillion-dollar deficit. You know, they've seen the gas, gas go up and energy go up, not just gas, at the pump, which is now in, in Boston, I believe the last I checked, it was uh, it was a little over four bucks a gallon. Uh, but also the cost of oil is going up, and that all not only affects people who heat their homes and businesses with oil as we enter into a very cold winter, but it affects everything. It affects how goods are brought to the market. It affects the means of transportation. Everything becomes more expensive if you have oil prices high. You have insidious signs of inflation which are manifesting itself in the cost of food, which is going up, and which for some reason, which is I, I don't know the background to, is not counted when the calculation with regard to the inflation level is made. I don't know why they wouldn't count that, but it's not. You have a national deficit that is, I believe, $16 trillion. It passed that benchmark, I believe, just maybe a week, week and a half ago. That matters. You know, that could bankrupt this country. That's, that's a, a lien on every single American's future. That's like a big mortgage that we're going to have to pay. Every man, every woman, every child in America has that as a debt because it's the national debt. Obama has expanded that debt by $4 trillion. That's hurt us. That's hurt the economy. He has used the money basically to pay off friends. And, and, it done, and in that sense, I don't necessarily condemn him because all politicians do that, whether they be on the left or on the right. But it was not the way to go. It was not the way to stimulate the economy, and it didn't work. The more appropriate way to stimulate the economy would have been to actually 
hold the line and maybe put place a moratorium on taxes so that more capital could remain in the private sector, which would then be used to invest or to spend, in which case other people make money because of the goods and services they create, and which would have served to encourage America as a magnet for foreign capital, foreign investment, foreign wealth to come into the country and invest. Instead, he took a loan to the big banks, which apparently he's supposed to be so against, uh, and through by means of uh, going to the Federal Reserve and having the monetized debt. And uh, then he took the money and spent it on his friends, liberal states mainly, who got big grants so, so they could continue to uh, go on as business as usual and not engage in the necessary cuts that they should be doing. You know, this has resulted, and that isn't going to go away. I mean, it's it, it slowed down a recovery. We now have the the longest recession since before World War II. You know, and yet Obama is saying that he should be reelected. We have people out there who are going to reelect Obama with this kind of an economic record. I mean, what what do possibly you know what what do you tell a working person? who is looking at, by the way, if Obama is elected and if the Democrats hold on to the U.S. Senate also, we're looking at a um, the largest uh, tax increase in the history of the United States, what is accurately being called tax Armageddon. We're going to see something like 18 taxes kick in next year that have to do with Obamacare. Not only are they taxes on businesses, which are going to be passed on to the consumer, but eventually there'll be direct taxes on you, the consumer, in the form of the mandate. If you don't pay it, then they're going to take $2,000 out of your paycheck every year to pay it. Either you have a choice. You pay it or you get the money extracted, mostly from advances that you get back when you file your tax returns if you're a wage earner that money will be reduced by approximately $2,000. That's going to happen. I don't know if it's next year. I think it's the year after. That will all happen if Barack Obama is reelected. We're talking about the largest burden, the, most, the, the largest expansion in the public sector, and the largest tax burden in the history of this country. Not in the history of the world, of course. That would probably be the Soviet Union. But certainly the most confiscatory and confis and um I don't know what what was the word that, that, that Lenin used? He said expropriatory, expropriation, expropriatory tax in the history of the United States. And and we're supposed to think this is good because it's supposed to tax people who are more successful than us. What a bunch of hogwash that is. If people believe that then they really should buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Do you really think that the, the, the top 1% liberal left-wing multi-billionaires and millionaires that that phony Elizabeth Warren likes to talk about, do you really think they're going to pay more taxes? Do you think the Kennedy family is going to pay more taxes? Or John Kerry, who is worth a billion dollars and who lives off the says, second wife's first husband's trust fund, do you think he's going to pay more taxes? Do you think John Edwards is going to pay more taxes from his ambulance chasing? I, I just don't think so. I think that their money is all nicely salted away in various tax-exempt and tax-free 
modalities. The people that are going to pay the taxes are you and I, John and Jane Q. Schlepper, public, middle class, lower middle class. That's who's going to pay that tax, and it's going to have a further constricting effect on the economy. But maybe that's what Barack Obama ultimately wants, and maybe that's why the left-wing media is going to pull him over the finish line, because they believe in this as well. They want to see America's economy dumbed down. They want to see a permanent infrastructure of unemployment like they have in Europe, where, for example, in France, they have a permanent 18% unemployment rate. They want to see a huge tax increase on those who actually are earning so that we can further strengthen public unions on the state level and further expand the federal public sector. They want to see that because they are socialists. They believe in that way of, they they believe that this is the best way in which we can govern ourselves. They don't believe in the old American idea, which is actually not old. It's quite progressive in the real meaning, which is that the individual maintains the maximum level of freedom and, and control over their own lives and their own destiny their own lives spiritually, their own lives materially, and in every other way. They don't believe in that because they believe that they are smarter than you. They believe that they have some kind of divine wisdom. Of course, that's removing the the, the quotient of God from the equation. And they believe that they have a a moral obligation to exercise that superior intelligence, that more evolved nature, over the rest of us. They believe that, which is why they will, would, and that's what Barack Obama believes, and that's why they will take any nece- any, any step necessary to pull, pull Barack Obama over the finish line, try to continue to pretend that he's a moderate, to continue to pretend that he is something other than who he is. And if that doesn't work, they're going to try to steal the election by stuffing ballot boxes across the country. That's what this whole business is all about with this attack on um, the reasonable and appropriate attempts by states to simply identify people who are voting so that we don't have fraudulent voting, so that the right of the American citizen is not diluted by, fo- by, 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 by phony votes. You know, the, the, the act of voting, especially in this country, should be viewed as, as the closest thing we have to a sacred right in a secular state. It is the direct, pure expression of will by the American people in terms of how we are to govern ourselves going forward into the future. We have choices between uh, our fellow citizens who stand for office and who present various bills of particulars in terms of what they believe in and what they plan to implement. And we have the option of voting for those people and what they represent because it most reflects our own values. In order to accomplish such a vote, one, as a minimum requirement, it would be expected, would be a citizen of the United States of legal age to vote and that that citizen would vote once. That's something that, at least on paper, is accepted by everyone. And yet there's this huge attempt to try to simply stop 
the ability of our state governments to recognize whether or not the person uh, showing up and, and trying to fulfill their civic duty of voting is who they say they are. The idea of having the one man, one vote, one woman, one vote, that is a progressive idea to try to make sure that that institution is upheld in its most excellent state by weeding out those who might try to defraud the system. And yet the liberal Democrats want to stop such efforts because they want to defraud the system. And they're playing the race card to do it, which is despicable and racist. The person behind all of this whole screeching about stopping voter registration uh, identification and claiming that such measures are racist is George Soros, who is a Hungarian, who's a far left-wing guy who's talked about world order and who has supported every left-wing cause in the United States with huge sums of money. Well, George Soros wrote a check for $7.5 million to this group called the William Brennan uh, Association, William Brennan having been a former U.S. Supreme Court justice, very liberal. And it's the Brennan group that came out with these phony studies that claimed that uh, voter ID laws would mean that African-American men and women would be denied the vote. Utterly preposterous, and, and, and not only a big lie, but racist. You know, it runs under the assumption that African-Americans, first of all, can't or do not, for whatever reason, have proper ID. In other words, it takes a paternalistic, Rudyard Kipling, white man's burden view of black people that the left has, a racist view. You know, I, I can assure people that my fellow African-American citizens are just as capable of registering to vote as anyone else. They have just as good an ID as anyone else. They are perfectly able, and they do, maintain normal means of identification just like white people. And for those who do not, whether they are black or white, and I think that the numbers are, are small, it's not this huge number, I would guess, I don't think it's unreasonable for me to suggest that they're not all that interested in voting. You know, they've got bigger problems. If they can't, don't even have a proper ID, you know, there, there are other issues. And, and my question with that, by the way, is why is it then that those who are screaming about voter ID, people like George Soros, and is funding it by the millions of dollars, why don't they put their efforts in helping people get ID? You know, by, by you know maybe helping them uh, get to a, a registry or helping them, you know, helping to reform ID laws on state levels so that it's easier for people to get a photo ID. You know, I mean, I, I support that. I think that's the appropriate way to go. I wonder if when someone shows up to get public assistance of any sort, whether it be welfare, whether it be legal aid, whether it be housing, whether it be food stamps, are they required to show proper ID? If not, why not? I would think that it is perfectly reasonable to suggest that our public servants who administer public, these public programs, our, our social workers, 
of which we have cadres that are probably in the hundreds of thousands, all of which are paid by by taxpayers, that part of their job, part of their function, would be to help a person get proper ID, you know, to help them identify themselves honestly. And then, of course, if we find out that the social working agency, social service group, was involved in fraudulently helping people get ID improperly, then that's a prosecutorial offense. They work for us, and they will have committed fraud. So I think that there would be a natural system of of balance and a check in such a system. And you could then have people who do not have proper ID, regardless of their ethnic background, um, get ID at the point where they show up and ask for some sort of a public service. And then, of course, they would then be eligible, that ID could be used, to uh, to vote if they choose to. So these are not insurmountable problems. We have the infrastructure for it. We're already paying for that infrastructure. It's just a matter of whether or not we have a government that has the will to implement it, and that we can see what we're up against every time we try to implement it. Getting back to this race, I would believe and I would assume that If Barack Obama falls behind, if it looks like Barack Obama might lose this race, there's going to be a huge national effort of voter fraud. They will start stuffing ballots like you've never seen. It would make the Al Franken theft look like, you know, look like stealing a pack of gum in comparison. And that's because they will do anything they have to do to win. It needs to be understood that this is what the left is about. It's about power. You know, I've mentioned many times that they're into it, they're oriented toward an authoritarian agenda. Well, what is authoritarian? Power. The more authority, the more power. Power, like the Reverend Jesse Jackson would say. And to hold on to that power or to further attain it, they will take any measure necessary because they believe in their hearts, and I think they genuinely believe this, that they are doing good, that what they're doing is humane and proper. Any means necessary because if they hold on to power, then everything will be okay. And if they lose power, everything will be bad. So they justify it in their own minds. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're welcome to join the conversation here at Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m., 347-327-9849. What is on your mind this afternoon? These or any topics are open for discussion. 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned.
347-327-9849. Come on down. 347-327-9849. Tonight is the big debate. They're all warming up right now as we speak. There's uh, the Drudge Report has a picture of the podium. The National Journal has a shock. They call it the shock poll. Uh, Romney is at 47. Obama's at 47. They're tied. Um, Obama is outspending Romney on TV ads in the battleground states. That's bad news. Um, Obama is playing the gender card in the battleground states. That's bad news. I hope women don't buy that. That's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, Mitt Romney would be the last person. Mitt Romney is no social conservative. He's not going to get involved with issues like abortion and whatnot. It's just not him. Um, both wives have been interviewed. Michelle says the debates make me nervous. Ann Romney, dad, always with Mitt. Mitt looks apparently to his father. He's, you know, when, when he gets up on the stage as a way to center himself. Um, oh, my goodness. Is, uh, my book, A Wig Manifesto, is being mentioned on Amazon.com. How do you like that? <laughs> I don't know if that means anyone's going to buy it. By the way, the, now that we're on the topic... A Wig Manifesto is available on Amazon.com. Um, it's, uh, oh, it's jumped up in sales. How do you like that? Uh, this is a, a manifesto for the, the Wig movement, the Modern Wig Party, which is a real political party. I'm not endorsing their presidential nominee this year, but I did write their manifesto, and uh, I think it lays out uh, what, what the... Uh, what it is to be a Whig. I asked the question, are you a Whig? Is Barack Obama a Whig? Is Mitt Romney a Whig? These are questions that should be burning in the front of every mind of every American. Um, the Whigs, of course, were a political movement that go back to the early part of the 19th century. It really goes back to the origins of the Republic. During the Revolutionary Times, in fact, so since we're on the topic of the Whigs, uh, you had the Whigs and the Tories. The Whigs were the in Boston were the uh, the Patriots. They were the ones who were uh, calling for the sovereignty of the states and uh, a rejection of the British royal crown. The Tories were pro-British, and so you know you had our first government uh, in, in for our first national government, which was that headed by George Washington, who I think was a Whig. Um, and the first early Federalist Party, which was the Whig Party, versus versus Jefferson's Republican Party, which was or the Democratic Republican Party, which was not the Whig Party. Let's just put it that way. What was the difference? Well, the Whigs, you, you could say by today's standards, the Whigs were neither left nor right. They were not on the right in that they did not they did not embrace philosophically the Jeffersonian view and that of course Jefferson himself eventually didn't embrace it either but uh, that being very limited government a very libertarian view where the states would retain more direct sovereignty the federal government would be weaker um, and that uh, you know a, a very kind of a limited view that uh, very much as expressed I think by today's Whig Party of Ron Paul. I mean, Ron Paul, I think, is an exemplar of that. 
this idea that the government stops at the water's edge, that the only real function of government is to maintain law and order and to keep uh, the court system. And uh, above, above and beyond that, it's all the individual is paramount. But it's also true that the Whig movement was not left-wing, as in which is the opposite of the, the right-wing libertarian movement, and that is more total government, more authority, you know, direct involvement in, of government control of, to, ver- to the highest degree possible politically, uh, control of health care, control of education, control of welfare, control of the culture, control of the media. Uh, you know, this is uh, the ultimate uh, goal of the left. You know, socialism, public ownership of the means of production. What does public ownership of the means of production mean, which is the actual literal definition of socialism? Well, what is public? Public is this mystical utopian idea of, quote, the people, unquote, which, of course, can't exist because there's no such thing as the people. There, are only, there is only such thing as individuals. I mean, which, who is the people? Am I the people? What if one of the people disagrees with the other of the people? I mean, this is a false construct. It is a, fall, it is a uh, what Marx would call a false consciousness. <clears throat> there is no the people, at least not in the real literal sense. The more literal you get about that, the more left-wing you are. So what happens is that in the construct of public ownership of the mode of production, the public has to be represented by the state, since the people have not evolved enough politically and socially that they become collectivized. You have to have a strong state operating as a custodian and as an exemplar and as an advancer, as a progressive entity, which moves the world or moves society closer to a paradigm of, quote, the people. And that in order to do this, the state has to be run by so-called progressives, people who feel that they are more enlightened than the rest of us, and that they have to exercise power, very strong power, to further advance their goals and to weed out and eliminate uh, obstacles to those goals. We could go into a history of how that's manifested itself, but it runs against human nature. It runs against the American ideal, which is that the individual operating under, under God or at least under nature ultimately maintains sovereignty because only God is sovereign. Anyways, public ownership of the mode of production. The mode of production is everything. The transfer of goods and services, the transfer of communications, the transfer of uh, distribution of, of all products. Any kind of trade between individuals is the mode of production. You know, if you trade an idea, you trade, you know, anything, you trade a, a good or service or, you know, if you're, if you're selling candy at a candy counter, you know, whatever it is. You're involved in production. You're involved in uh, the mode of production, the means of production. And in the socialist context, those have to be controlled by the state, the public, public ownership of the means or the mode of production. And that, of course, is what the left is about. That is the underlying ideological and, and philosophical 
underpinning of the Democratic Party today, <clears throat> and certainly of socialism. Well, the Whigs are in the middle. The Whigs actually are the most moderate. They're not libertarian in that they do believe in a national, strong national government and a strong national economy, but they believe that those who exercise control over that strong national government operate under the Constitution. They are not trying to create a utopia, which means they have to be elected, and that they're operating, therefore, in the interest of furthering, the, uh, furthering and advancing the American Republic, not some utopian uh, collectivist dream, not leaving all sovereignty in the hands of the individual, but a national government that is operating in the national interest, both politically and economically, and for that matter, spiritually. They are nationalists, the Whigs are. You know, George Washington was a nationalist, and his probably the most exemplary Whig in his administration was Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton. John Quincy Adams was a nationalist. He was the first Whig, even though he wasn't a Whig in name. He was the, the, the closest, probably the closest national figure of the 19th century that we had that could be described as a Whig. The Whig Party itself developed in the in the 1830s. It, it, it came out of the anti-Masonic movement, uh, and also the anti-Masons actually fielded a presidential candidate um, in 1828, that being William Wirt. And their their idea was that uh, secret societies were bad, and that that no public official should be a member of a secret society. Uh, I, I don't agree with that in the legal sense. But I certainly agree with it in terms of efficacy. I don't think that we should have secretiveness at the top levels of our government. You know, it does bring up questions of uh, loyalty. You know, they, t they take these blood oaths that are, you know, unpleasant. I don't like it. I mean, I would rather them take only one oath. I, I'm not one who's under any kind of oath. I, I, I reject the whole idea. And but anyway, the the um, the the anti Masons eventually evolved into the into the Whig movement and the Whig Party. Uh, they, they patented the idea of national conventions, party platforms, primaries, a lot of the things that we now uh, have as part of our infrastructure were patented by the Whigs and really by the anti Masons originally. Uh, they elected a president outright in 1840, that being William Henry Harrison. He only lived to, he only lived about a month, and then mysteriously died. <clears throat> Tyler took over, who was not a Whig. They then came back in in 1848 and elected Zachary Taylor, who was a Whig. He died mysteriously after two years, and he was succeeded by his vice president Millard Fillmore, who was a Whig. And after that, the Whig Party, at least as a formal political party, petered out. What did they stand for? National infrastructure, the building of roads and bridges across state lines, um, economic policies that protected American industry and American labor, both in terms of, um, of tariffs on foreign imports and also um, uh, regulation of, of immigration so that American labor could, could be sure to um, – preserve its position. 
they supported a national bank, but one that worked directly with Congress and that that um, essentially worked in the national interest so that uh, the government could raise funds to conduct some of these activities. Uh, a very different entity, by the way, than the Federal Reserve today, which is an entirely private institution that recently told Congress to butt out of their business. You know, they have a monopoly on setting interest rates and on the issuance of currency in this country without much uh, congressional involvement. That's not what the Whigs had in mind with the National Bank. Uh, so, But the Whig Party in the 1850s, it went by the wayside mainly because of pressures brought to bear by the upcoming Civil War. You had the Southern Whigs and the Northern Whigs, and the whole thing unraveled due to those pressures, uh, eventually coming back in the form of the Republican Party, the early Republican Party that nominated and elected Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Abraham Lincoln was a classic Whig. He implemented tariffs, the Morrill Tariff, that named after Alexander Morrill. He's a congressman from Kentucky. Um, he implemented the National Railway System, the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, he wanted to build a strong national federal republic, um, which also recognized the rights of the states and recognized the concept of subsidiarity. He was a Whig. Uh, since his time, other Republicans have been Whigs to varying degrees, a lot weaker than we would like. I think that the Grant was a Whig. Um, certainly, um, you know, other Republicans of those of that era were Whigs. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had some Whig aspects to him, but he actually was much more of an internationalist, which is not a Whig idea. The Whigs believe in nation first. Uh, they urge other nations to also put in Whig policies, which is to protect their own sovereignty and, uh, and to secure their own positions for their own people. The Whigs championed civil rights. The Whigs championed the right of the individual to sovereignty within a national system. And, um, and as such, uh, Whig ideas continue to be manifest. The question that I would ask today is, first of all, are you a Whig? And secondly, is either Barack Obama or Mitt Romney a Whig? Anyway, let's take a brief break. You're welcome to join the conversation, by the way, at 347-327-9849. That number again is 347 347- Three two seven nine eight four nine. Please stay tuned. In hour number two, the Cyber Station Hour, we've got uh, Curtis Grieco coming up. The Imperfect Messenger will be discussing the upcoming debate and election. 
Uh, of course, uh, Chuck Moore Speaks is on Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Uh, last week, I interviewed John Coster. He is the author of Operation Snow, How a Soviet Mole in the FDR White House Triggered Pearl Harbor. I just finished reading the book. It's excellent. I really enjoyed it, although I will say that um, I think Mr. Coster has a slight bias and a slight leaning historically toward the Japanese. Uh, he seems to minimize some of their war crimes. Uh, but yet he does make the point that <clears throat> while the Pearl Harbor attack was their responsibility, they're the ones who, who launched it, there were forces within the U.S. government that goaded them into it. Uh, he particularly focuses on probably the main player, and that was a man by the name of Harry Dexter White, Harry Dexter White was a Soviet communist agent. He wasn't necessarily a member of the Communist Party, but he was an agent of influence inside the uh, Roosevelt administration who conducted public affairs and used his position of influence in a very high level in, to the advantage of the Soviet Union and to the disadvantage of his country, which makes him one of the worst kinds of traitors. Also, Harry Dexter White was involved in some very treasonous activities um, in his career, which is a very infamous story. Uh, probably a worse, uh, more, more, he did more damage to our country and to freedom than Alger Hiss, who was also a high-level, top-level Soviet asset, a KGB agent, you know, a, a Stalinist operating within the um, the Roosevelt administration, how it could happen that we would have ostensibly intelligent, seemingly loyal Americans, you know, home-bred, you know, corn-fed American citizens, get so wrapped up in radical left-wing politics is a subject of fascination. It's a, it's a big subject. But uh, suffice it to say that John Coster gets into the, Harry Dexter White's involvement in instigating the Pearl Harbor event because the Soviet Union wanted to drag the United States into the war. Now, to a certain extent, Roosevelt wanted to get the United States into the war, too. But he was somewhat ambivalent about it. And also, Roosevelt was, you know, he was a dummy. I mean, he was one of these sort of <clears throat> talk about, you know, he was everything that George Bush, they said about George Bush. He was one of these elitists who, you know, born with a silver spoon, not a deep thinker, not didn't really know much about what was going on, extremely vain, extremely pompous, a very huge ego, which was easily massaged. <clears throat> The main, probably the main skill he had was just a sheer political ability to, to uh, be vindictive toward his enemies and help his friends. But not the brightest guy, and his secretary of the treasury, Morgenthau, was it was was even worse. I mean, he was a he was almost a cat's paw of of Roosevelt, and his assistant Harry Dexter White was the smart one of the three. White was the communist agent. That's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, not just through congressional testimony, but also through the release of the Venona decryptions, which were Soviet-American communications during the war that were declassified in the, um, in the 90s and which showed that uh, 
Harry Dexter White was in touch with Soviet uh, KGB people. Well, the book shows how after Hitler double-crossed his socialist ally, Stalin, after the Nazi socialists double-crossed the Soviet socialists, in June of 1941, after they ended their alliance, the Hitler-Stalin pact, uh, by invading Russia, you had an about-face, 180-degree turn by the Soviets. Suddenly the Nazis, their former friends, were to be called right-wing, <laughs> which, by the way, they were compared to the Soviets, but would be left-wing when compared to American politics and fascists. Um, and Stalin immediately had his agent in the United States, um, that being a man by the name of um, of Vitaly Pavlov, who boasted about it years later, get in touch with Harry Dexter White. He met, he met him for lunch in New York. And um, he said to White, we need to have you help us get the United States into the war. And we think the best way to do that is to set up a, a scenario in which Japan would attack the United States and then the United States could get in it and um, fight. Or we, we, would, we would be, you know, we would have uh, our Western Front would be free. In other words, the Soviets were afraid of the Japanese who were very expansionist and uh, who had defeated the Soviet army and certainly defeated the Russians before them. And they, you know, they needed to pull their military out of Siberia without worrying about a Japanese invasion and focus on uh, defeating Hitler and focus on uh, conquering Europe. So they wanted to get the United States into the war so that we could attack Japan and that would distract the, uh, the Japanese and they would have a free hand in Europe. So... You then had a situation in which uh, Harry Dexter White began operating, and after agreeing to it, in such a way that he would push the Japanese into the war. And he wasn't the only one. It was also uh, Assistant Secretary of State Dean Acheson, who was not a communist, but he was a British. He was a friend of the British. He was an Anglophile, who. Um, after after the uh, Americans implemented mild sanctions, oil sanctions against uh, Japan, he tightened those sanctions to total sanctions during a time when Roosevelt was on vacation. Roosevelt was mourning the loss, the death of his mother, whom he was a uh, – talk about mama's boys. I mean, he was totally dependent on. She lived in the White House in a bedroom next to his. And also the death of his mistress uh, or, or the – the paralysis, she had a stroke of his mistress, Missy Lee Hand, of whom he left half of his estate. So he was having his little emotional problems in the summer of 1941, and he was distracted. During that time, Atchison tightened the oil embargo against the Japanese, uh, which had been previously mild. That encouraged war. But the final straw was when the Japanese diplomats came to Washington and met with Secretary Hull. Uh, Secretary of State Hall and uh, Cordell Hall, and negotiated a uh, a modus a modus vivendi, a, a truce, a uh, you know put the put the relationship on the right track, so that they could avoid war and that uh, 
Japan made reasonable concessions that would not have resulted in uh, a loss of their honor. You have to realize it's a society that's very much based upon national honor. Uh, this was accepted by Hull, but then when Ke- when um, Kevin White, I was going to say, when Harry Dexter White got wind of it, he immediately sent a letter to Hull, and he started activating in the background to get a um, a new treaty pushed, foisted on Japan that would break that treaty. He referred to it as a Munich treaty, you know, that this is appeasement, and that he said that this is like giving, selling our country for 40 pieces of gold, which is a reference to the New Testament, even though it's actually 40 pieces of silver that Judas uh, uh, accepted in exchange for his selling out Christ. Um, and, and that he, he proposed several sanctions on Japan that were so draconian, Japan would have to immediately withdraw from all of China, they would have to sign a 10-year non-aggression pact with the United States that would require that they sell 20% of their produce to the United States or their, their technical products, and other conditions which essentially would have made Japan almost a vassal state of the United States. No country would accept such a such a an ultimatum. Japan responded with Pearl Harbor. And so the question is why did White get away with pushing the this this ridiculous and, and unprecedented and irrational um agenda on Japan, uh knowing that it would trigger war. Well, that's why he did it. He knew it would trigger a war, and it did. And the result was the deaths of hundreds of thousands of American men in uniform. Uh, It wasn't until after the United States declared war in Japan that the Nazis began the final solution at at, uh, Wannsee, because at that point they knew that they they would never, um, you know, they kind of knew that they had to take extreme measures, that, that, that the Jews would not be, uh, no country would take them. They would not be exported out, given the anti-Semitism of much of the world at that time. And so they decided that the only way for them to deal with their irrational anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews was to exterminate them. That might not have happened had the United States not entered that war, had Harry Dexter White not been successful. Anyway, Harry Dexter White also had several other instances in his career that were almost as bad as that. He's one of the greatest traitors probably in, in, in the history of the planet. I mean, you don't get worse than Harry Dexter White. I mean, we're talking about a man who, you know, is responsible for not only the deaths of tens of millions of people, but the advancement of, of, of international communism, which has oppressed hundreds of millions of people, put millions of people to death, caused untold suffering and disease and destroyed lives and poverty. Harry Dexter White played a major role in promoting that agenda by using his power behind the scenes in government to to get things implemented like that. Anyway, that pretty much wraps up the first hour. We'll be back in hour number two uh, with Cyber Station USA Radio Network and, um, of course, Blog Talk Radio. We are expecting Curtis Grieco to call in the Imperfect Messenger. We'll be discussing the uh, getting back to the news of the day. We'll be talking about what to expect from tonight's debate and what it could mean to the upcoming election. Stay tuned for that. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. 
back, 347-327-9849. Of course, I'd like to welcome aboard our producing station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and our online partners, Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse hosting Chuck Morse Speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here in Boston, Massachusetts. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. That number, again, is 347-327-9849. We're waiting for the arrival of... Curtis Greco, who is with the, who is, calls himself the imperfect messenger. And Curtis always has some good information on, and some, and some pretty snappy opinions with regard to uh, political developments and the upcoming election, not to mention tonight's big debate between uh, Obama and Mitt Romney. Um, we, uh, we, you know, there's not much you can say. I mean, it's just, it's going to happen. It's going to go off. I think around, I don't know, 7.30 or so. Um, a lot, of course, is riding on this. I think that um, the polls have tightened. This is a real horse race. You know, it's really um, not known um, how, how things can go. I know that um, it's interesting to me that, um, that uh, quietly but never, nevertheless inexorably uh, there's been a uh, various uh, – agendas amongst various states to uh, allow for early voting, including voting even this week, apparently. People are voting now, which uh, I think is troubling. Uh, you know, we don't know what might happen between now and Election Day. Somebody could vote one way and then change their mind, but it'll be too late. So th that's worrisome. I don't know how that's going. I would, um, I would imagine that it's probably – not going in in Romney's favor. I think also the business of the um, a delay in the um, in the veterans vote is something that's another dirty trick. You know that's that's not going to help uh, Romney either. Now, you know, with an election this close, it looks to me like um, the people that back Obama, particularly in the mainstream media, are going to do whatever it takes to, to pull him over the finish line, and that includes stuffing ballot boxes. And engaging in the kind of voter fraud that they were used to doing in a routine manner back in the days when Acorn was operating at full steam. But since Acorn has been compromised because of some good, solid investigative reporting, and by by people like James O'Keefe and uh, and Hannah Hannah Giles, two good young reporters who exposed Acorn as a criminal syndicate that it is. The result was that the federal government had to cut off its contracts, and ACORN went into bankruptcy. So ACORN, which has a national infrastructure in, I believe, almost all 50 states, and which has been involved in accusations of voter fraud going back to the 1980s, they're not functioning as well this year. So you have instead an attack on, on um, states who are trying to implement reforms with regard to stopping voter fraud. And at the same time, you've got, I believe, an agenda that a voter fraud that'll probably make the Al Franken situation look like can't like look like a, a nursery uh, rhyme. Uh, you know, that was an obvious case of voter fraud. Um, anyway, we'll be back. We're going to take a brief break. I believe Curtis Grieco is with us, the imperfect messenger. Uh, we shall return after this. Please stay tuned.
347-327-9849, Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon, and, of course, Stitchers, which is our online uh, app. You can download the program and listen to it um, through Stitchers for free anywhere on your cell phone. We're also, by the way, up on TuneIn and on um, on uh, on what, what is the uh, I'm trying to think of the Apple um, site there. Oh, um, the um, whatever it is, I can't even remember it right now. There's an Apple site that carries music that also is carrying this program. Um, you know, I mentioned it uh, recently uh, to my daughter, who was a big fan of Apple, and she I said, "Hey, look up." Look at my show, you know, go Chuck Moore Speaks. And so she went to the site, and sure enough, there it was. She was very impressed. So you could go to Apple now and listen to the program as well. Uh, let me welcome aboard Curtis Grieco, who is uh, is known as the Imperfect Messenger. Curtis, how are you? Absolutely fabulous, Chuck. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invite. My pleasure. Curtis, your observations. We have – it's kind of difficult at this point to even discuss the fact – what what might happen or speculate within hours of now uh, with regard to this national uh, debate that will be taking place between Obama and Mitt Romney. By the way, I just got an email about voter fraud. You know, the Republicans have been accused of a very minor case of voter fraud. I'm not suggesting that they don't do it, too. But the real national systemic voter fraud going back to the 1980s with ACORN, and with the motor voter bills and other things that make it easier to do, it's it's a liberal Democrat thing, and I think that they're stuffing ballots as we speak. Well, it's difficult to you know object to the comment. I mean, after all, you know, one of the things that you always hear about uh, when in political discourse and uh, public discourse regarding government is you always hear these conversations about conspiracies. You know, there's conspiracy theorists, right? And they're yes. always labeled as a quack, as some sort of, an, uh, some sort of a, you know, uh, person in some sort of rectal defilation of some sort, with some intellectual void. But one thing, folks, need to remember that um, any any intention that lacks opposition, by its very nature, is a conspiracy, right? I mean, this occurs constantly, right? You know, so on the issues of, uh, you know, so this is not some sort of ethereal mind twist or mind warp that these types of things go on. I mean, the fact is that as long as the public doesn't object to it or oppose it, then just nearly anything, as we can see with our own federal government, is possible. So, you know, it works on both sides of the of the aisle. Uh, but what more ironic, more difficult that uh, most people should find is the fact that. Why is it that it is so difficult to converge on the common ideal that would suggest that a republic requires faithfulness and discipline in the electorate for it to function? So who would oppose that unless, of course, you have an agenda, right? It just yes. I, I find it a form of lunacy, but in any event, uh, uh, well, on your voter, on your voter fraud comment. And, of course, there are conspiracies. I mean, there are criminal conspiracies. We have That's why we have a, a system of law and justice, to, to try to ferret them out. And to suggest that there aren't political conspiracies is the height of, of ignorance and naivete. Absolutely. You know, when you, have, when you have situations where people are trying to obtain power, and when I say people, I don't, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about movements. Right. They're going to engage in various activities that uh, would, by any conventional definition, be the definition of a conspiracy. 
in order to further that power. And I think this election is an exact example of that. Barack Obama, if this had been a conventional election, and if we were looking at the record of Barack Obama as president of the past four years, the amount of poverty that has increased in this country, the fact that the top, the overwhelmingly liberal and left-wing top 1% wealth earners are getting richer while the rest of us schleppers are getting poorer, the fact that wages are down, benefits are down, unemployment is up at an unprecedented level, uh, the, the longest sustained recession since before World War II, then, you know, this person would be down by 10 points. You know, but, I mean, Romney should be ahead by 10 points. Uh, the reason he's not is partially his own fault, because I think he's in many ways an inept, uh, you know, candidate. And I say that with due respect, because I've met Mitt Romney many times. But, you know, there's there's a disconnect there. But, but the bigger issue is the fact that... Um, Barack Obama has a very dedicated ideological left that thinks he's doing a wonderful job because by their definition, he is. This is what they want. And that includes most of the mainstream media who will not, who not only will not report on anything negative with regard to Barack Obama, who he is personally and professionally, but they will do anything that they have to do to pull him over that finish line because they know what's at stake, power. And to suggest that there's not a conspiracy involved in that is just dumb. It's pure ignorance is what it is. I mean, you know, um, I, there's multiple ways we can go from that comment. You know, I can – on the issue of, of Romney, I will simply just say this, is that I, too, have met him. He's actually a very fine man. Um, uh, the, he is, unfortunately, a little on the collegiate level, which is a function of his of his uh, the domain that he's come up with and a bit on the academic side uh, as far right. as his persona. So he doesn't polish well in the in the general terms of what the public has come to expect from the glitter class of the political elite. You know, he doesn't sit nicely on the on the sofa with Oprah, or with the with the ladies on the View. He doesn't. It's not his domain. It's not his world. But I will tell you this: as a debater, uh, if all we have to do is look back at uh, earlier this year in the uh, in the debates with uh, in Florida, particularly those with Newt Gingrich. Also a man I've met many times, and I will tell you, a very intellectually uh, stout and quick-witted individual, mm-hmm. and uh, and Romney uh, effectively trounced him. Um, so uh, I would not underestimate his ability to do well in the debate. Um, I do, um, I do, I do have an issue with whether or not it matters, um, and uh, for, uh, on the grander scheme, on the grander uh, domain of, of of the of the election itself, because I think there's bigger issues at play in the entire dynamic, particularly as it relates to polling data, which nobody wants to talk about. Um, and so um, I think that that's an issue. Whether tonight, I think the reality is this: number one, is Obama is a scripted type of fellow. He does very well when prepared or or working off script. I think he is. Mm-hmm. He, I've debated these types of people many times in the past, and I will tell you that they're very easily easy to upset. They're very easy to uh, derail. Now, whether or not Romney will actually set him up to accomplish that, I don't know. I doubt it, but I do think that if uh, a a sharp bar back in response to something idiotic that the president might say, I think that sets him potentially sets him up. But to the quicker and the and the more and the more simpler point as to the outcome of tonight, um, that the I actually think that the my personal opinion is is that the debate system works actually in this environment actually works to um, not necessarily to Romney's benefit but more so to the president's detriment 
because if, at the end of the day, if we're going to be faithful to the to the body electorate and what the race is about, it's about the it's about the slicing and dicing of the uh, intermediate or the middle of the road or otherwise known as the independent vote. Right. And whatever happens uh, come the you know this election period, I I I run the numbers. We watch those electoral college switch and the and and the uh, metrics of the electoral college count. Um, and I will tell you that it will literally come down to a two to three, um, two, a two to five um, electoral college vote swing. And um, you know, in the background, uh, Chuck, there's this other thing that's out there: this uh, state, uh, this common state agreement on the popular vote agreement that's making its way across the nation. It probably won't affect the election this season, but the next presidential election, 2016, um, it will. Uh, and that's this. Uh, like that. That's the ascension of the uh, agreement where the states, it's called the Popular Vote uh, uh, Consortium. Oh, yes. It's awful. It's awful because and it proves the point of how ignorant the American public is. They actually think that the U.S. president is the president of the American people and that it is a popular vote. That's not the case. The president is the uh, chief executive of the Confederation of 50 States. Um, and that is the reason why the Electoral College was created by the Founding Fathers, because it was the purest and most faithful and predictable way to manage the apportionment of the representative nature of a representative government at the state level. Um, but what they're doing is that what they're attempting to do, what the Democrats are pushing very hard and by and large have actually quite um, effectively accomplished it even without this uh, agreement, um, is to in effect – tie the popular vote as a winner takes all. In other words, if the state popular vote right. falls in favor of one, the electoral college vote goes to the leader of the um of the popular vote. And if those states who sign on to this agreement agree that in that case, in that event where the popular vote becomes uh one candidate versus another, they will automatically assign all their electoral college votes to that leader of the uh of the popular vote. This is devastating to the rep, to the concepts of of, of, oh, it's of complete, it's a complete government. unrun around the Constitution. I've talked about this before, Curtis. It would mean, for example, that California, which is a very liberal state, their their uh, college would have had to, by law, vote for George W. Bush right. in 2004 because he got the popular vote. I mean, it's um, it, it really is a huge, but it doesn't matter because it's a huge concentration of power into the hands of the federal government. It would be an authoritarian move that would be unprecedented in this country to have a national president. You're quite right. We have 50 separate state elections. That's what the Constitution calls for with regard to the presidency. And, um, you know, yeah, you're, you're talking about a movement that's been around for a long time. It's very well funded. Massachusetts has gone along with it. It's, uh, it's really, really ugly. And I don't know if it's because people are ignorant on the state level or if it's because there's something more sinister going on, but it's definitely something that's going to completely upend uh, our constitutional understanding. But let's I want to get back to the um the Obama race. I mean, I don't understand how anyone in this country other than real left-wing ideological cadres and the left-wing media could support Obama for president right now. Not with this kind of record. I just don't I mean, you know, if you ask them rationally and I actually brought this up with someone on the left uh, yesterday, <clears throat> and um, I, I said, you know, he asked me what I thought of the election, and I said, well, Barack Obama has increased poverty in the past four years. He has uh, he has increased the separation between the the rich and the poor. 
the the left wing rich are richer than ever, the predominantly left wing. Um, wages are down, unemployment is up, all of the things that are facts. And his response was, oh, well, that's all George Bush's fault. I mean, in other words, they're not going to, you know, deal with reason here. They're not going to take a look at the Obama policies. Well, you're um, absolutely right. There, there's two but, things. But, but those people are like hardcore left-wingers. I'm talking about your average American who actually not only do they care about this, but they're affected by this. They're people like you and I. They're people certainly like me who have had their employment cut back. They've had their benefits cut back. They've had they've seen the value of their dollar go down when they buy gas at the pump and when they buy food. You know, they see uh, the the uh, lack of savings. Uh, they see a stagnancy out there, and there's no energy to the economy. There's no energy toward in, investment is down. Capital accumulation is down. All of the things that actually affect our daily life are down and have been down for four years, and yet they're still going to vote for Obama. Well, I think you bring up a point, which I'm glad that you did, because I, I think this is the, the a component, two components taking place here. Number one is the American public's expectations of government and their economic standing has been dumbed down. Their expectations have been lowered. We have become mm -hmm. a nation that looks actually to survival mentality in t instead of growth mentality. The result of this is given comments or given life to comments that apparently seems to have gotten uh, Romney into trouble with his 47% comment. The man speaks truth, and he's assailed in the media for making an obvious comment about a known fact. As far as the president is concerned, the reality is this. There has never been a president that has performed so miserably in the function of the executive or the role of the executive of the 50 confederation or 50 states, or the confederation of the 50 states in history than President Obama. Now, that is not necessarily a fault of Obama. In fact, I don't see it as a fault or a failure of Obama. I actually see it because – you know why? Because he didn't get there on his own. The American right. public put him into office. Unlike okay. the rest of us in business, right, who did get there on our own. Right, yeah. yeah. Number two, I believe that in the polling data that shows Romney uh, trailing in these um, um, so-called uh, up-for-grab um, states uh, is is missing – Is at, at one point is missing a strategic and critical component of the pathos that's out there. But at the same token, because it's illustrating – uh, Romney trailing is actually subtly indicating the existence of the pathos, and it sounds like this. There's a, and I refer to it as adverse equality in the electorate. There is a component out there I, which uh, which I characterize, and I made wrote an article on it, and um, appears in the Facebook, uh, the foundation, a section of it appears in the Facebook, um, the, the foundation's Facebook page, and mm -hmm. it deals with this. Chuck, it's it's it's. There is a, an underlying current in the American conscience that wants to see no president fail. We are by nature rally around the the culture of our representative democracy. Americans right. intuitively want their freedoms uh, and understand the concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They don't know how to articulate it in the form of a legislative process because the legislative process has effectively excised the American public out of it. But the truth of the matter is no American – I mean I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to see the President, uh, President Obama fail, but I'll be the first to tell you that he's an absolute failure. Now why right. is this a critical point? 
And why is this in, in, what is the component embedded in the polling data that is not necessarily reflective faithfully to where Romney stands in the equation? And that is this. The issue of race in the public consciousness has become so ultra-sensitive that nobody will acknowledge that with the desire to become a homogenous society as to race, that the component that is missing in that is the willingness to apply the consequence of failure equally. Right? So the reality is is that I don't believe that the polling data is accurate for one critical reason, and that is this. They are not registering in the sampling, and the sampling data is not registering the truth, and that is this, that though a person may vocalize a support for the president, they may actually be vocalizing support for the president because they're unwilling to admit what they feel about his right. performance for fear of it sounding or appearing as racist. I think that's a very interesting theory, and I think there's some truth to that. There are social mores which uh, people are, are not willing to cross, and yet that doesn't necessarily uh, reflect what they're going to do in the sacredness and the, and the privacy of the voting booth. Yeah, I think what they should that's, ask that's is they, absolutely should, true. they should have an air risk question embedded in the polling data that asks this. Is your decision uh, – is your response to this question – Irrespective of, or not, uh, 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 not representative of your fear of an adverse response due to the perception of it being a racist, a racist outcome. And now, if you can get an answer to that, then you can completely wipe out the sampling accuracy of the polling data. And I believe that it's actually, right. I, I, I believe embedded in the conversation, embedded in the data, embedded <clears throat> in the public consciousness is this great fear. If I'm known to be adverse to the uh, to the president re- because of his performance, regardless of the truth of that, I will be labeled a racist because, after all, he happens to be uh, a, an individual that has some African um, uh, uh, legacy in his uh, in his family history. So the, I okay. think it's a, I think it's a valid point. We're joined by Curtis Greco, the imperfect messenger. You're welcome to join the conversation. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Chuck Moore speaks Monday through Friday noon to two p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, it was um, it was actually um, Henry Adams in his book The uh, Education of Henry Adams who mentioned that politics is a collection of hatreds and that people vote on their emotional anger or their hatred when they go into the polling booth. They want to get this guy. You know, you go in there and you say, oh, I'm going to stick it to this one. And I think that um, the the campaign against Mitt Romney, because there aren't any issues that could really be brought up against him that would generate that kind of anger, you know, he's a relatively moderate Republican. He's kind of – I wouldn't say he's a country club Republican. He's not like a Nelson Rockefeller type. Um but he's he's you know he's not a a, a real conservative type, uh, so there's not they can't really hit him with that. So they're bringing up the fact that he's rich, and that he's therefore an elitist, and that this is supposed to generate anger, so that when people go into the voting booth, they're going to go, oh you know that guy he's he's got more than I do. He's got a big fat. You know, bank accounts, and he's got a, a, a big uh, property, and he's rich. I'm going to screw him. 
by voting against him. I would never vote for someone like that. You know, it's the old, um, it's one of the major selling points, one of the most biggest marketing points of the left, always has been, putting aside the fact that they have all the wealth. But we, we could get, get into that separately. Um, but, uh, you know, this idea that the guy down the street who has more than you somehow is taking something away from you and that you're entitled to a piece of what he has just because you want it, because he has it and you don't. You know, it deals with, in other words, they are appealing to the most base aspect of human nature envy greed really and and that's what does drive people you know i mean i've seen it i've seen people in line at polling places mumbling these sorts of things i mean this is what gets people up and often i'm not talking about most i'm not talking about all but i'm talking about a percentage and it's enough of a percentage to win a race it's what gets them out of bed and makes them go to the polling yeah we're going to get this guy but it's also a component of what I spoke earlier, of, Chuck, and that is the component of dumbing down the electorate's expectations. It's that divide and conquer. It's that Saul Alinsky-esque comment that says something like, make the enemy live up uh, to his own book of rules, right? Ridicule is the most important uh, po political weapon, right? These are the right. types of things that polarize the, the, the public. This is the dumbing down of the electorate. But in your comment about Adam's re reference to the hate factor in the electorate uh, or in the voting booth, it, I, I believe that it absolutely accurately f uh, depicts the caricature of the far-left activist mentality, this Alinsky-esque sort of a concept, the concept of Bernays used in driving mm -hmm. social order by creating false premises, but driving them into, mentality, into the mentality of the public so that the public believes a false premises that's simulating reality is in fact reality, when in fact it's right. not. Right, but this has to go. This goes to that issue whether where where the public, you know, um, two things, and that is your comment about uh, uh, Romney being a a moderate a Republican. He falls into much of the very same category that most legislators uh, uh, do, and to some extent, so does the American public because they endorse it, and that is the belief that they they believe in the fundamental truth of sovereign individual life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But instead of letting and forcing the government to stay out of it, they actually believe they have to legislate it, right? Mm. And so in the course of defining these legislative practices, they actually destroy the very fundamental metrics that makes a society fundamentally free and, and the function of government to be faithfully representative. And it's kind of like, you know, why the need, right? Why the rush to, to legislate, where in the in the diagram of the progressive movement that brought us, you know, the entitlement bungles of Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, um, you know, the ability of of unions at the federal level and the state level to have collective bargaining, uh, and and every form of entitlement state uh, or status mentality um, that has become law, most recently and the most destructively, the um, the national health care concept, otherwise known as Obamacare, where in this equation? Does it become the role of government? How does this metric enter the public consciousness where they actually think that simply because you can legislate thievery, that sticking your hand into another person's pocket, that by law, by making it law, makes it somehow right? And and, and I think well, Romney, like many others before him, uh, have fallen into this trap uh, at the at, in, in, in the legislative function where in, where in most cases doing nothing – from a legislative function would have been a far better option. And right, but, exactly, and they're like, well, what have you actually done? I mean, I, my, my thought is that uh, I'd rather they do nothing or stay away 
and and let you know we, we'd all be a lot safer and a lot freer. Yeah, let uh, the native pro- yeah let the native <clears throat> process. But I but I think that what you're talking about is is the fact that we've become conditioned over many many decades to to look to the government as a, in a paternalistic way, something that was rejected by the founding fathers, something that has been a policy that has kept nations back. It, it's our rejection of that idea that has been the key to our success. And yet we've been conditioned to it. I think it goes back really to, to the Roosevelt years, even the Wilson years, where government um, became very paternalistic and in the name of protecting us from some kind of an emergency. Right. It becomes very parental and it's very emotional. And, and we then to usually to, we, we, we revert to almost like a childlike state. And to then um, sort of make a make the point, there's often some sort of a manufactured emergency that that rallies people in that direction, whether it be a war or whether it be uh, you know some kind of a, a financial collapse or whatnot, and people begin to look to the government as a, as a baby would look to a mother. You know, it's a it's a conditional thing that has been supported, but it was previously rejected by Americans. I mean, for the for mostly, and um, and our rejection of that, the ability of us to be rugged individuals, to pull ourselves up. To uh, ask the government to only assume things that absolutely can't be done by individuals, you know, it was that ethos that made the country great. So I guess the question is, how far down that path have we slipped? And uh, and going back to my 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 paradigm of how people vote emotionally, you know, when people go to the polls, they're not using their heads. Oftentimes, they're using their emotions, which is this sense of getting revenge, greed, envy. You know, their heads would tell them that they just spent almost five bucks a gallon to drive their car to the polling booth, that they just, the cost of hamburger at the grocery store just went up, that they're less secure in their job because they just got a cutback, or they're being threatened to be cut back, or they're unemployed, or they've had to take a, a, a cut in salary or in benefits. You know, that, that there is this thing called the deficit, and even though they may not think it's anything right now, it is a mortgage on our future, that it is going to become due at some point, and that we've got radicals around the world killing American ambassadors and, um, and, and holding up burning American flags for reasons that are inexplicable, mainly because we've kind of abandoned this stage in terms of our moral stand in the world, who we are and who we're not. And yet they don't care about that. All they care about when they go to the voting booth is to just get their shot at that guy down the street who has a, a prettier wife than we have and is a, drives a bigger car than we have and is better looking than we are and all that stuff. Well, you know, we, as you mentioned, you know, this sort of uh, transcendent view or ascendant view of the government, uh, you know, has become this avuncular status, right? You know, and we even refer to him as Uncle Sam, right? You know, right. so it, it, it's embedded in the culture. As far as how far down the road we've gone on this, it's it's pretty darn far. Uh, is it reversible? Absolutely. One of the great comments that I've heard uh, was came from the eulogy of Senator Kennedy, his son. He said, one of the things I learned from my father was that uh, even our most profound failures are ultimately survivable, right? Uh, and so the truth of the, is that there is the capacity to reverse these trends, but it's going to take a, a specific and disciplined disciplined convergence upon a common ideal uh, by the American public, not the government, because you can't fix the government. Right. You can't fix – the government is beyond its ability to repair itself. 
It will never occur. It has never in history occurred. But, but Curtis, I look, I agree with you that it can be repaired, but why? how far down the path are we going to have to go before we wake up and start repairing it? I mean, look, at there. we could take a look at historical examples. I mean, look at what happened to the Soviet Union. Oh, no. You know, how far, I mean, look at Nazi Socialist Germany. I mean, these are situations where things got so bad that eventually there had to be a huge explosion, and then, yeah, they repaired it. But look at the cost. I mean, how far are we going to slide into this socialistic, you know, mediocrity, uh, the dumbing down? I mean, you know, people, you know, I think that we, we should point out that Barack Obama's agenda, which has been articulated by various people in his administration, is actually to dumb down the country. They want to have higher unemployment rates, just like they have in France. They want to have higher gas prices to force people to want to invest in public transportation and to drive people out of the suburbs. You know, they want to, they have an agenda like this. I interviewed recently Stanley Kurtz, the writer for the Washington Times and uh, the National Review, and he's written a book about this, that there's an agenda to basically uh, emphasize the urban centers and to depopulate and to de-neutralize de, uh, de the suburbs. You know, these are big national agendas that require economic mediocrity and a dislocation in our in our economic system. They want to have those things, but they also need to pretend otherwise in order to get reelected, and they're relying on the left-wing media to get them reelected. But in the bigger picture, they don't want to see this country uh, truly sovereign politically and truly operating economically in its own interest. You know, they're not nationalists in the real sense. Oh, absolutely not. But more importantly, Obama told you he was going to do it. It's in his book. You know, it's it's in his writings. It's in everything he's done that has brought him to the point where he's now uh, occupying the Oval Office. These are not surprises. He he specifically said what he was going to do, and he actually did it. On the marginalizing of the of the public, you're absolutely right. The best way we look at history and we look at the pathos of of uh, Freudian ideology and the Marxist mentality that gave us the lives of of, of Lenin and um, Trotsky and um, of course uh, Hitler and Mussolini, um, every one of them understood that the best way to control the public sentiment was to dumb them down, was to make them dependent, was to lower their expectations. I mean, even Goebbels made a great comment. He said it is the right and duty of the government to alter or 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 to frame the public conscience. So it's it's occurring, you know. Obama writes in his book that he wants to bring the United States to the level of equality in the world. Now that's an interesting comment, right? Right. That's, that's that's not making equality. That is what he's actually embedded in that comment in that comment is he intends to lower the standing of the country so that we are equal among a, a, a globe of mediocrity. Well, it shows that Obama's a communist is what it shows. I mean, yeah. this idea of de facto equality as opposed to the American understanding of equality, which is du jour equality, that being we're born equal right. because we're all created in the image of God as opposed to the, the Darwinian idea, which is that we're all born unequal. Uh, but they want to have literal equality, and the only way to achieve that is to uh, create a collectivized and somewhat automatized public. I mean, right. they want to create an international ant colony. You know, this is uh, this idea of holding this up as a virtue, that somehow we are to look upon becoming equal to countries that have less than we have, that that's good. Quite the opposite. We should be holding as a virtue the fact that we have more. We're not taking anything away from someone else. 
We are creating wealth from nothing. We're creating it because we're free. And I would ask other countries that are not as successful to emulate that, that example, not because we are better than them, not because not out of chauvinistic reasons, but because these are universal ideas, the idea of freedom, the well, idea that the individual can be sovereign and creative and to invest both uh, economically and even spiritually in their own life. You know, that's going to create that, you know, there's a reason why we, we are superior. And I mean superior, not in the real sense, not, again, I don't want to sound chauvinistic here. But, uh, you know, we, we should honor that. That's good. Not not this idea that there's some sort of virtue in actually, you know, becoming poorer and becoming stupider so that we can be like other nations. That's well, not going to help anyone. It's going to make everybody poorer. Well, and the ideology is embedded in a lot of comments. This week we released a or uh, uh, article, uh, Afghan, Afghanistan Dying for a Strategy. And in there, it's, it can be found uh, you know, on various newspapers around the country, but you can find it quickly at the Imperfect Messenger Foundation's website. And the, 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 it's a comment, the commentary about Afghanistan, but it draws to a particular specific point about a comment that's often used, and the American public is railed behind it, and it says something like this. You know, we're out there making the world safe for democracy, right? And I says, and, and, and there's a critical comment about this. It says, one, doesn't, one does not make the world safe for democracy at the point of a gun. One democratizes its virtues, <clears throat> excuse me, one demonstrates its virtues in practice before an unsafe world, compelling those who are victimized by the tyrannical to find in the ideal a compelling cause worth pursuing. You know, what we, you know, uh, the adverse to that comment or the extension of that comment is we're out there saying we're going to make the world safe for democracy, but we fail to ask the most critical question. And that is, what's wrong with our form of democracy that we have to make the world safe for it? By any other word, by any other phrase, that is global collectivism. That is this concept of one world order, this concept that we are a nation uh, that is a among a community of nations, that embedded in that comment is the presumption that somehow that well, there is nothing unusual, nothing exceptional, or nothing extraordinary about the American ideal. And I well, believe, I mean, like you, well, first of all, let, let, me, let me take a, a brief break, Curtis. Uh, you're listening to... Uh, Chuck Moore speaks here at Cyberstation USA, Blog Talk Radio, and our affiliate stations. By the way, you're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. is the number if you'd like to join us. 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse here. Uh, Chuck Morse Speaks being the program Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My guest is Curtis Grieco, the imperfect messenger. Curtis, uh, where can people, by the way, read your excellent articles? Well, the, the, the quickest way to reach them is to go directly to the imperfectmessengerfoundation.com. Uh, they're always posted there. You can Google um, and the, the foundation's name or my name, and they'll pop up. They populate all over the web. 
Um, and of course, on the, uh, uh, the foundation's Facebook page, was a very active uh, dialogue uh, that goes on there, you know, 24/7, and um, the regular posts that we do on a daily basis appear there. So it's always a it's a great place for people who are looking for an alternative view that is not covered in the media. And I welcome all all your listeners to uh, join in in the reverie and participate. Excellent. And uh, we're talking a little bit about um, the left wing rhetoric of the past, but also of more recently of Obama and how that runs contrary to American basic notions, which are much more natural to the human condition, uh, and those are based on freedom. And you mentioned uh, this idea that originally was promulgated by Woodrow Wilson, that being uh, entering into an unnecessary war uh, for to make the world safe for democracy, um, a war that we should never have entered into. And, and by the way, while when we were in it, World War I, that is, there was almost a martial law situation in this country that was uh, almost a complete dictatorship for several years. Um, and um, you mentioned Edward Bernays. He had a major part in that Absolutely. in terms of marketing that to the American public, and it kind of got us used to this idea. But the whole idea of making the world safe for democracy, we can't make the world anything. <laughs> Nobody can make it. No nation can use it. I mean, that's an imperialistic, you know, altruistic, utopian idea. You can basically be who you are, and the rest of the world can observe your success and follow the example within the context of their own cultural and and political and economic understandings. But uh, you you, you can't make anyone anything. I mean, you only can – you know, people have to come at things on their own. I mean, that's the whole underlying idea of Christianity. Well, that's the personal theology. relationship between the individual and Christ. It's not something that can be imposed. Well, no the one can make you a Christian. Right. Well, the theology of this sort of comment, this hegemonic comment of making the world safe for democracy, if you think about it, it pretty much licenses just about anything a government wants to do. Right. Sure. It, it self-licenses the entire process where the government now, under this banner of making the world safe for democracy, can do pretty much whatever it wants. And as we can see, it does. Right. Number two, what it also does is it makes a false promise, and it also is based on a false premise, and that is that somehow by selling off our own personal national compass, our own personal national um, uh, concept of sovereignty, that somehow by doing that it extends across the globe, which of course it doesn't. As you point out, you can't make a – by simply making a statement, the outcome equal to the statement, to the embedded in essence of the statement. No one in your life, you know, you can't simply by projecting a self-licensing completely alter, and I refer to this as, you know, the simulation of reality, right? The And, and, it, and it occurs perpetually. I mean, we can look from today all the way back to the World War I period um, and say, ask yourself this question, what foreign entanglement has the United States been involved in that has done anything to expand, enhance, or perfect the the common ideal of this nation, which is built around the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I challenge anybody to point to any one single occurrence or one single outcome of any of these conflagrations that has done anything to expand or enhance your liberties and your freedoms. No, exactly. I mean, they, they, they've been agendas to uh, take attention away from our individual liberty. And by the way, uh, last week, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this, uh, Curtis, but I interviewed an author, John Coster, 
Mm-hmm. He's written a book called Operation Snow, How a Soviet Mole in FDR's White House Triggered Pearl Harbor. What an interesting book this is based on recently declassified information. He points out that it was a Soviet agent operating in the Roosevelt administration, that being Assistant Secretary of State Harry Dexter White, right. who actually goaded the Japanese into attacking Pearl Harbor because his handler in Moscow told them that they needed to get the United States into that war. Um, you know, because uh, they wanted to relieve their Eastern Front. And this was after Hitler had double-crossed Stalin in June of 1941. Um, and uh, they needed to uh, take the pressure off of the East so that they could move their army. They were afraid of the Japanese. And so he uh, he instigated, he helped instigate the war. <clears throat> he wasn't the only one. I mean, it was also Dean Atchison, who was a pro-British, Pro-British guy. Right. And, and, of course, Roosevelt. Yeah, well, Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was a boob. Yeah, I mean, Roosevelt was one of these – talk about – you know, Roosevelt, it looks to me, I mean, based upon this book anyways, he was he was everything that they claimed George W. Bush was. I mean, he was – talk about a silver spoon and, and just uh, out of touch and not very bright and just one of these kind of well-bred guys from Groton and Harvard who just wanted to – he was an egomaniac. He liked to have his, his, his ego massaged. And, um, you know, people who – you know, basically kissed his backside with the people who got ahead, and if you didn't, then you know he was very vindictive to to enemies. But he wasn't; he didn't have any deep, uh, you know, ideas. I mean, he it was, wasn't. It was, it was an elitist ideologue that was easily malleable and incredibly truculent and vindictive, to use your word. And you can look at what he did to the Supreme Court, uh, the threat of the to the Congress right, of stacking the, the, stacking the Supreme Court as an as an indication of his indict of his, his ten, tendencies toward vindictiveness. But on the issue, you're absolutely right. That that is not a supposition that he makes a comment about the Soviet mole. That's absolutely ver- That's absolutely true. It's also well. well the, what this book shows is that Roosevelt was dis- in the summer of 1941, which was after the the Nazi invasion of Russia. Roosevelt was distracted by the death of his mother, and talk about mother's boys. She was living in the bedroom next to his in the White House, right? Basically, telling him every you know, uh, running his day, and also the his his mistress had a stroke, Missy Lee Hand. Yeah. So he wasn't having much of a sex life, and he was distraught. You know, he was he went into a depression, and during that time, Atchison tightened up an oil embargo in Japan. Right. Um, there was supposed to be a mild oil embargo. He made it total, and and White sent this missive in that uh, that would have basically been a declaration of war. And then you had two Japanese diplomats in Washington negotiate with Cordell Hall, who was the Secretary of State, who was very racist, by the way. Yeah. Um, to uh, that they came to an agreement, an entente, which uh, would have been reasonable for Japan to save face and yet step down from some of their ambitions. And at the same time, the United States would maintain the neutrality. And it was all agreed to until White got a hold of it. And he then said, this is like Munich. We're, we're, we're basically selling out to the Japanese who are trying to engage in world conquest, which was untrue. And we have to impose this following treaty on them, which involves something that could only be described as a declaration of war. It would have been, I mean, Liechtenstein would have declared war against us if we had, to, you know, it's like... We, we and we're doing it again. Tell, yeah, we're I mean, they were saying they had to completely withdraw from their, all these territories. They had to sign a 10-year pact with us, which they had to sell 20% of their technology to us. It was basically turning them into a colony. I mean, it was total, you know, it was an utter 
you know, declaration of war completely unnecessary. And sure enough, they responded with Pearl Harbor. Uh, well, so we're, you know, we're doing we're staging the exact same event right now. This is taking place right now in the Middle East over uh, with, the, with Afghanistan. Um, it's occurring on the uh, African continent with the AFRICOM. Um, the, the African Defense Command, and, and of course in the Pacific Rim again with this little these trysts that are taking place in the South China Sea and the China Sea between Japan, Korea, and Taiwan and, and mainland China. These are all right. playing out again. It's it's the the symmetry of the of the of the uh, of the parable of history repeating itself is proving itself once again right before your very eyes. And most Americans are completely clueless to it because nobody wants to nobody wants to know this stuff. Nobody wants to pay attention. Right, and also I mean, Roosevelt himself, I think, maintained a certain ignorance. I don't think he wanted to have the United States enter into that war, but he, um, you know, he just kind of went along with it without, you know, looking at what he was doing. And yet, meanwhile, you had these brilliant operatives like Harry Dexter White, right. who wanted to drag the United States into the war because he was pro-Soviet Union. He didn't care about the interests of this country. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, uh, it's really no, stunning. Yeah, Roosevelt was trapped in a very uh, in his own ideology, and he was looking for a way to perfect it. And so, all of these temptations and all of these influences around him, Cordell Howe, White, uh, the industrial icons of the era um, from Michigan, and the banking aspects of, of New York, and the British on their end, and the Bank of England, who was uh, losing bil- in today's dollars billions of dollars because of Germany and the battle between Germany and France, the, occupy, the occupation of France. I mean, there was all of these things taking place in this uh, in this cess- cesspool that was the policy, politics, and environs of 1930s, 40s U.S. And of course, the, the the problems economically that the United States was in because of some of these ca- bits of chaos that were created as a result of World War One that put. Uh, Wilson in a position of being basically induced by the banking consortium to permit the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, and right. and all of these different dynamics were playing out right before their you know in, in this very short period of time that um, you know the uh, Pearl Harbor um, as we know was 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 known to be going to take place as early as November 1st and. As recently yeah. as November twenty eighth, twenty seventh, because even the U.S. Defense Command sent out um, a notice as cablegrams to uh, MacArthur in um, in the Philippines, uh, telling him that uh, negotiations with Japan appear terminated. Japanese future action unpredictable but hostile. Action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot repeat, cannot be avoided. The United States desires Japan commit the first act. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the whole thing was a setup. Yeah, and sure uh, there was a big major aspect of communist involvement in, in making that happen. It, it was a you know to, to try to create this international order, and it, it was utterly against American interests. You know the Japanese also there was I mean this is according to this author. You know Japan was the only Asian nation to not submit to colonialism in the 19th century and 20th century. They they turned their back on it. They maintained sovereignty, and then they expanded and became a superpower. And this was, um, he claims, a, a racist attempt by the West to try to destroy that superpower, and they did, to the to the extent that that opened the door to um, a communist uh, colonization, if you will, of China. Well, it's the collectivist mentality 
but you know it's it is this illusion that somehow collectivism is somehow this uber equality concept but it isn't it's actually the a supreme um narcissist and financially capable organism around the globe that wills these events to take place they just paint it and color it in a way that becomes uh, marketable and uh and sellable to an ignorant public and the consequences and it's always been around i mean it's uh, it always has it's not this isn't new i mean they they say that this is somehow a new idea Whitaker chambers who i'm sure you're familiar yes. with yes. his his autobiography witness is one of my favorite books and i urge people to particularly read the first chapter which is his note to his children where he explains yeah. communism right and he points out that communism is the world's second oldest religion that it was the temptation of the garden of eden you know the idea you can be as the gods you can know good and evil you can have right. superpowers you know you can overthrow god in heaven you can be a god literally and that it's that temptation that led eve to pick the apple um, that was the uh, the admonition from the serpent. Right. You know, it's that same admonition that has been there in every generation. It is part of human nature. It's part of uh, it's it's anti nature, but it's part of human nature in the intellectual sense. You know that that there are people, particularly people who obtain wealth and power, to want to go beyond their success and start to control others and to make to be as gods to try to create a new human being a new human nature that's what darwinism is all about you know this idea of evolving the species into a superman right you know this is the whole agenda behind that it's a it, so it's nothing new but it is the responsibility of those of us who are concerned with progress in the real sense and liberty and concerned with the um, self-interest and the maintenance of our own lives and that of our families and our friends and our community to to just constantly and vigorously oppose it. It's just an ongoing struggle. Neither side is ever going to totally win. It's just a matter of um, understanding enough people have to understand the nature of liberty, that liberty does not grow on trees. It's something that has to be struggled for every generation. Um, and, and to get to that, we can be freer. And I think this country is an example of, a, of probably the first society in history where, liberty, where the ideas of liberty have been held by enough people for enough time that they have been dominant enough Absolutely. that we have a system here. Well, and, and my, 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 my purpose, my goal, the entire reason the Imperfect Messenger Foundation was created, my, the three of my major books are deal with this subject. You know, We Hold These Truths is one of the books. Value Given, Value Received is the second book in the series, and the third uh, book in the series was called Valor and Prosperity. And it, the, the entire purpose of these books was, it, was my attempt to evangelize these fundamentals because I believe on a completely apolitical uh, mental or apolitical um, vantage point. I do believe that, man, um, uh, you know, the, these things that we hold to be true, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the created of the creator is a divine extension of that very image. It is our duty to express the uniqueness and the ascendant capacity of mankind, that we are, are bound, that we have a duty to one another, I to you, you to me, 
to not only protect and assert those uh, privileges and those mandates, but to actually evangelize them, to make certain yeah. that people are vigorous in their understanding of what's at stake here, what what right. it means when when somebody talks about legislative action at the or at the Supreme Court level, and they're talking about the issue of Roe v. Wade. It's not the issue of Roe v. Wade that troubles me. It's the presumption that the state has presumed to have the authority to dictate and determine what becomes life. And these the moment you enter into this domain of thought where you believe that you are are uh, above and and beyond the reach of ethereal and um noble consequence is the moment you have charted into territories that have massive consequences. They have seismic and tectonic consequences uh mm-hmm. to the human being. And I believe Personally, that what's what's taking place right before our eyes is a fundamental shift in the public consciousness. The challenge we are in right now is the public understands there's something gravely wrong going on about us. They're not quite certain what it is. They're not necessarily capable to articulate it, but they know there is something wrong. And I believe that unlike in past histories where you have these seismic shifts in cultures that give life to the Mussolinis and the and the uh, the the um, uh, the Reds in uh, the yeah. Stalinists and the Trotskyites and all those in in Soviet Russia, what became Soviet Russia and and Hitler, the problem isn't so much that the degradation occurs. The, what the greater risk is what steps in to replace it once the entire concept or the pre- precedent becomes invalid or proven invalid, and that's where we're at in this country. That's why this election is so critical. And it why is, it's and, so that's, and that's been the restraining influence of this slide we're talking about. And uh, just to, to end the conversation, Whitaker Chambers also talks about the choice we have before us, the choice between God and man, God and man. Either we choose a supreme being that we are created in the image of, or we choose a man-made entity on earth that can change human nature, or at least presume to. And uh, that's that's what it's all about. But Curtis Grigo, I again want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's an absolute privilege to be with you. I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. The work you do and the cause of perfecting our ideals is, is magnificent, and I'm truly grateful for the privilege. Thank you, Curtis. We'll do it again soon. Take good care. Okay. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at noon right here at uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Blog Talk Radio, and our affiliates. Have a good afternoon, everybody. <laughs>